You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. In the last days of the legislative session, we've been hearing pushback from a cross-section of local groups about a bill to extend leases on state land. HPR's Kuve Hirishi joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, we're talking about House Bill 499. And so what this bill essentially does is it authorizes the state Board of Land and Natural Resources to negotiate directly with tenants on public lands to extend their leases for up to 40 years. So we'll help put this in context. These leases, for the most part, uh, a majority of them at least, came about after statehood and the Board of Land and Natural Resources with that 65-year lease. That term is about to come up in as early as 2024. And so uh, what these lessees or tenants are thinking is, do I stay on this land? Some of it is perhaps uh, dilapidated and it requires additional improvements and investments, which right now under COVID is really hard to justify without the certainty that they'll be able to stay there a little bit more long term. And so at least from how the legislature had designed this bill, uh, that's the aim is to give these tenants some certainty into staying on that land and attract investment and improvements to the land. And we've been hearing, though, pushback. The voices getting louder and louder this week leading up to the vote yesterday. Exactly. There were, uh, up until this vote, I think a lot in opposition came from Native Hawaiian groups and environmental groups worried about the lack of input and oversight in a process where BLNR just works on an agreement with these tenants. And um, there were questions about whether or not the public would be a part of that process and how much a part of that process, because if one agreement leads to a 40-year lease agreement, uh, that means that tenant could potentially be there if we add the 65 years to the 40 for more than 100 years, and that was worrying for members of the community that I've spoken to, uh, one in particular, Helani Sonora Pale, uh, with the Kalahui Hawaii Political Action Committee, had expressed the idea of unrelinquished claims to ceded land. So in this public lands group of lands there that the state has and manages are included about uh, 1.8 million acres of ceded lands. And so the idea of tying that up with whatever private landowner uh, or state entity is something that was a bit scary. I think Kurt Favela, senator from EVA, had articulated that sort of frustration at the last minute. He uh, attempted to offer a, an amendment to the bill that would uh, I guess exempt the Department of Wine Homelands lands, so lands that are uh, managed by DHHL could fall under this bill according to the language of the bill because government land leases, of which the DHHL uh, does hold, would be subject to possible negotiations by BLNR. And so he wanted to carve out the trust land. He wanted to exempt DHHL. Uh, the University of Hawaii system was exempt. There were questions surrounding that on the floor. But here's Senator Favela explaining. Uh, you can hear that frustration. You're talking about lease and commercial land, but again, are we putting it out so Native Hawaiians can put out the bid for this lease and commercial land? No. We want to have improvements on hotels and resorts that's going to be millionaires that's going to put in the money and then pretty much for 20 to 30 years have free lease rent because they made improvements on the property that they should have made improvements on prior. I did get to speak to Daniel Kea. He's the general manager of Hilo's Prince Kuhio Plaza. So this is a mall in Hilo that uh, sits on Department of Hawaiian Homelands land and uh, therefore would be eligible uh, under this bill for that extension. And uh, Kea says that the threshold for investment, even to apply for an extension under this bill, requires at least 30 percent of uh, an investment in the, I guess, 30% of the property's fair market value will need to be invested into improvements or developments. So that's, uh, according to Kia, a, a pretty high threshold for smaller communities or, or entities on land on our neighbor islands that some may not be able to afford. So this isn't sort of a blanket everyone can just renew their leases. There is an opportunity to apply 
if again they can invest that 30 percent and do you know uh, what uh, kind of position dlnr had on this dlnr had um, testified in support um, saying that this would be a useful tool in sort of expediting that process of one keeping those tenants on the land if there was any doubt that they were going to leave and keeping the money flowing to the state and also uh, to help them manage and, and keep the I guess community or the landowners or land managers that have been on the land for that 65 years have this uh, sort of embedded themselves in these communities and allowing that to continue especially now uh, with the pandemic recovery was something that was being looked for. Okay and now that the lawmakers have passed it it heads up to Governor Ige's mm-hmm. desk and we'll see if he signs it. That's right. The opposition is focusing their efforts right now on that part of the process. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We've been listening to HPR's Kuvehi Reishi. Find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, accepting vehicle donations for its Kidney Cars program, helping to reach the more than 200,000 island residents at risk of or affected by kidney disease. More at kidneyhi.org. Bernie Madoff was a supervillain to most. This is a man that done stole more money than anybody else. But a superhero to some. He's more important than Jesse James. You know what I mean? Bonnie and Clyde. Remembering Madoff and the Ponzi ripoff he masterminded. Cash rules everything around me. Queen, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. On the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe. Today's Reality Check with Honolulu Civil Beat focuses on the investigation of police killings. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us. Good morning. Morning, good to be with you. Yeah, so you have launched off what's going to be a, what a series of stories about the police, what policies and practices. That's right. Civil Beat has launched a new series. It's called The Police Files, and we're going to be investigating and examining how police work in our communities, and that includes fatal encounters with police, misconduct, the influence of the union, reform efforts, all kinds of stuff. So stay tuned for that. Okay, and you know we've just had the two fatal shootings recently here on Oahu. Uh, and you've reached out to the prosecutor's office. That's right. We wanted to learn what happens after one of these shootings uh, occurs. And what I learned was really interesting. I spoke with First Deputy Tom Brady at the prosecuting attorney's office. And basically, he described a situation in which HPD has been investigating itself after these shootings. So prosecutors review the cases. after HPD has already investigated, but in terms of collecting evidence, interviewing key witnesses, that's all on police. uh, Brady actually told me that prosecutors have been banned from the scenes of these officer-involved shootings for a couple years now, and even before that, weren't allowed to ask questions of the, the key witnesses, the officers themselves that were involved. That's interesting. I didn't realize that they were uh, uh, not allowed to show up you know, uh, at those crime scenes, because I recall over the years, you know, seeing the prosecutors uh, show up and that obviously got everybody's attention, you know, whenever a police chief or a prosecutor would show up at a crime scene. Right. That seems to have changed in 2018 when Keith Kaneshiro was uh, put under federal investigation and uh, Chief Ballard didn't want to work with him anymore. And it seems um, somewhere along the way he was he was banned Again, him and his office were banned from these scenes. So prosecutors really rely very much on the police when they are uh, supposedly investigating the police. Um, And that's not necessarily unusual throughout the nation, I should say, um, but there are other places that provide models with greater independence and much more transparency than we have here. So is anything going to change? What do we know? 
Well, Steve Alm, the prosecuting attorney, is going to be holding a press conference tomorrow. Um, he'll be talking about the updates to his 100-day plan and the progress he's made, but also his office has hinted to me that they're, they're going to be making some changes into um, how they review these, these fatal encounters with police. They wouldn't divulge any details. We'll have to stay tuned tomorrow. Um, but they indicated that they, they plan to make it more accountable and more transparent because um, as it is now, really we don't get a comprehensive accounting of what happens in these situations um, unless lawsuits are filed, and they often are. But, you know, public attention wanes, um, and then just, you know, they keep happening. There's never um, a listing of the facts and recommendations on how to prevent it from happening again. And I know the internal investigations have always been a sensitive issue. You know, they had their their IA, the Internal Affairs Division, um, looking at right. various things. That's important to note. So the HPD, when they're investigating these things, it's really two different arms of HPD. There's the, the criminal uh, investigation detectives um, that, that investigate, and then there's the professional standards office, the Internal Affairs folks. Those are separate, and the officers involved are only required to participate in the professional standards piece. That's the administrative part that they could be disciplined for, you know, some kind of violation of policy. They could be reprimanded or fired, um, but they don't have to participate in the, the criminal piece, and the prosecutors are only seeing information from the criminal arm of that investigation. And so what does uh, Shopo think, or at least the f maybe, you know, current and um, uh, past Shopo members or officers, yeah, I should well, say? I spoke with one former union official, a retired commander. He really felt like everything was fine. Um, his name is Alex Garcia. Um, he d says, you know, he doesn't really see any conflicts of interest here, doesn't see a problem with police investigating police, and feels that prosecutors have always been tough but fair in these situations. Um, he said he wouldn't object if some other agency, like uh, a neighbor island police department, were to investigate Honolulu police-involved shootings, but he really doesn't see the need for it. And uh, I know you have actually on your, uh, on your story today kind of a list of uh, some of the police-involved uh, uh, shootings or killings. That's right, yeah. We, we're compiling kind of a working spreadsheet of these things um, going back about 10 years. Um, so more than 30 people in the past 10 years have been killed um, by Honolulu police, um, and we'll be keeping this updated, unfortunately, as, as they may continue to happen. Okay, and then we'll see what... Uh, Prosecutor Steve Alm unveils tomorrow. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much, Christina. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her story in this series, uh, visit civilbeat.org. We continue the thread of police matters this morning on our segment, The Long View. Analyst Neil Milner joins us today. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, you know, you probably heard Christina talk about her story in Civil Beat. And, uh, um, you know, she talked to, I think, a former police officer, head of the union. She reached out to the prosecutor's office. But, uh, yeah, like, what, do, what does the public think, right? What do communities think? Well, that's what I tried to figure out by looking at it in a more general way. And, and what I really figured out is how limited it is to look just generally at public satisfaction with the police. I started with a study uh, by uh, three researchers that took a, that did what's called a meta-analysis, where you take a bunch of other studies, usually smaller in scale. They did 66 of them. There are ways of doing this, combine them, and to see what they showed about what seems to be related to satisfaction with the police. And um, they found out a few things that are, that are interesting. It, the race is not necessarily related to it in a general way. Um, gender is not necessarily related to, to another way. Uh, what seems to be more concerned, remember now, they're trying to talk in a general way, and we'll get back to it. Your experience with crime seems to make a difference. Some 
But the main thing that they say is how little you can get out of this because they're, what they call so much of it is, con is contextual. That means that there are a lot it depends, and it depends on the particular neighborhood that you're in, particular cities that you're in. So much of this then turns into, if you're thinking about the Honolulu, Honolulu Police Department and what's going on now, is essentially how little we know about satisfaction with the, with the HPD and what that means and doesn't mean. I should add one thing. There's a recent national poll, and again, this is national, asking you about trust in police. And again, this is a national sample. It shows that trust in police is up in regard to, including in regard to the rights of the minority. Um, it, and it, it's up compared to a year ago. Black Lives Matter, uh, trust in Black Lives Matter, which is, was up to 60% nationally, is now down to 50%. So, you know, you can create various pictures. One picture is to say, if you look at it generally, we can say certain things and people may be kind of satisfied with the police. But that's not how policing works, that's not how politics works, and that's not how communities work. And that's where we get, you know, where we get to, to Honolulu, to the HPD, and, and, um, and what's going on now. So that's kind of the context. Um, and what it suggests is that Here's what it doesn't just suggest, it, it, it shows. We know zip, zero, in any kind of systematic way about satisfaction with the Honolulu Police Department. One, because no one has done any research, and because the, the department itself doesn't, provi prevent, doesn't provide any kind of systematic satisfaction consumer uh, studies. To their credit, uh, uh, Big Island Police Department does. They do a regular one that's got some serious problems with methods. But they report some pretty interesting stuff, and some of it is pretty critical of the department. But we don't have any of that stuff here. What we have right now is a series of very visible and emotional events, um, very much in flux, that may or may not affect overall satisfaction with the department. But even, but that's just part of the question here. It's who gets more affected and why and so on. So that's the context. Well, it would be interesting to figure out, okay, over here then, who would be the right entity to do a survey? You know, would well, it be the police commission? There, okay, there are really two answers to that, one of which is that you maybe can't get good answers from a survey. If, if much of this, you know, what this other research suggested is that to really know, to really get a sense, you almost have to, to do more nitty-gritty stuff. It may vary. Lots of things vary by neighborhood that we pass over. But lots of things vary according to particular groups, according to neighborhood strength. So the first question is, the first issue is, you can only get so much out of a general survey. The second question is, like any other kind of general survey, you don't let the organization that's most affected by it run it. So if you had someone that wanted to do a survey of that and had a a commitment to it, you know, that's not rocket science. It involves a little bit of money, and you have to understand, you have to understand the limits. But remember how much other things besides, quote, public opinion and numbers are involved in this kind of thing. The, the, the emotionality, the, ver the uh, visibility of particular events. You know, this is what's going on now in, in, uh, in Ottawa, who is really not about survey data. It's about some some uh, police killings that have raised the ire of lots of people and that the police department has not responded to very well in terms of public. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a different kind of, of information. The, you know, our prosecutor, Al Alm, is not responding to survey data. He's responding to what he feels and, and what he sees. So one other thing to add to that, over the past few years, um, increasingly, the, one of the debates about police departments here, about the HPD, has been essentially, and this is simplistic, but it's pretty descriptive. One side says, you know, race is not an issue here. We're different. We're a different kind of department. We're more diverse. Um, we don't have those same kinds of issues. And in lots of ways, that's what Chief Ballard uh, used to say. The other side is, is, is picking up on a lot of, uh, on the similarities between what we're seeing here and what we're seeing on the, you know, on, on other places on the mainland in, re in response to uh, racial bias, uh, implicit bias, and in, in response to killing more people, of, a disproportionate number of people of color, 
Um, and that is much the context here as, as overall satisfaction. Well, you know, I know we do have to acknowledge that, uh, you know, law enforcement is a, is a hard job. Oh, it's a terrible job. Oh, God, yes. I mean, and I used to spend time back in an early life riding around with them. It's an awful, it, it, it's a very hard job. Um, anybody, but I think saying that it's a very hard job simply is the beginning, not the end of the discussion. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, do we need better trained officers? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, we need to look at what uh, just because it's a hard job doesn't excuse uh, excessive force uh, or, uh, you know, uh, violating somebody's civil rights. Well, here's another argument that's being made that I think deserves more attention. You know, there's a lot of fight over whether when something happens like this, uh, when, uh, the, you know, when the, the police officers in Minneapolis are charged with a crime and one of them has been uh, convicted for the, the George Floyd thing, there's the bad apples argument. It's not the whole police department. It's bad apples. And as some policing expert recently pointed out, you know, that's just one way of seeing it. The other thing to see it is that you, and so that involves maybe some training, some more stuff about implicit bias and so on. The other basic problem is cultural and organizational, and that is that, that the police as a uh, police departments as organizational cultures are still unwilling to confront one another in situations where someone is behaving badly. That is, it's not just about the bad apples, it's about good apples not confronting, uh, uh, not confronting the bad apples when the bad apples do something wrong. Now, again, when you say policing is a hard job, that's really hard. But on the other hand, that seems to be a fairly, that seems to be a very important aspect of all of this. If you have police officers who see something and don't say something or see something and don't do something, like in the, in the Minneapolis case, most of the time um, that puts a pretty strong stop on everything. Yeah, and it, it, is, it is complicated, you know, given the climate of things happening across the country, all the different cases that are coming to light. You know, we've had the two recent ones, you know, in like two weeks. And then we also had the killings of the two officers in Waikiki at Diamond Head where, you know, they were shot in the, in the, the line of duty. Sure. And so, yeah, the sacrifices uh, that the officers make putting themselves, uh, you know, on the line, yeah, it, it is complicated. Oh, it's, it's interesting, though, and I agree, and it's certainly – I mean, certainly everybody should remember how, you know, how hard it is. And if, they, and if they think that that's, I mean, that's spectacularly hard, obviously, when you lose your life. But the everyday work that police officers have, like being essentially the only people who have to come in contact with homeless people and try to do something for them when they don't have resources, um, you know, is, is the other part of it. But that can't be used as a... It's used all the time as a defense for people to get off police officers' back, and I don't think that that's a proper defense. Oh, no. You've got to hold people accountable. Yeah. Thank you so much, You're Neil. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Okay, bye. Political analyst and social scientist Neil Milner is our contributing editor of our bi-weekly segment, The Long View. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanities Restore, a home improvement store and donation center, open Tuesday through Saturday from 9.30 to 4. HonoluluHabitat.org. As he approaches 100 days in office, President Biden will deliver his first speech before a joint session of Congress. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. It comes amid challenges, the pandemic, an economy still in recovery, civil unrest, and international tensions. Join us tonight for live special coverage of President Biden's address to Congress and the nation from NPR News. Live coverage begins this afternoon at 3 here on HPR 1. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Joyful Return, a museum-wide exhibition featuring a presentation of modern and contemporary highlights from the permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. Got kids? Well, you may know a thing or two about parenting hell during a pandemic. Karen Gibson is a parent and an educator. She runs a tutoring business, and she wanted to help stress parents because she knows it's hard tutoring your own children while trying to work at home. She began sharing parenting tips online on social media, and that turned into a book entitled 100 Parenting Tips Inspired by the Pandemic. Here's Gibson. Last August, my friend from Kauai said, why don't you just do a couple of weeks of parenting tips? So I did daily lives on Facebook, and I just came up with these parenting tips until the school year started. Because I am a full-time tutor. My brain builder's business started in um, 1999. So I just started doing some virtual tutoring, which I wasn't sure if it would um, take because I have a lot of, you know, kids who have attention deficit um, problems, but it was really, really effective. I think when you have one-on-one, you know, it, it works better than when they're one of, you know, 20 squares. Then I just ended up doing it. I did, ended up doing 100 of them, and then I did 100 Instagram lives based on each of the parenting tips, and then I decided to turn it into a book. Okay, so like what ki- kinds of tips are we talking about and what, what age group? Oh, it, it runs a gamut. I have some, let me see, let's just see if I do parenting tip number 57. You know, the art of being interested, that could be at age three if they're interested in building Legos to, eight, you know, the teenage years, right? If they're into um, Fortnite, say I, I have girls, but I noticed that my, my students who are teen boys, the way that I connect with them is finding out what they're interested in. So I think that it's really all ages. I have 58 is create a consistent bedtime routine, which could be reading a story while they're, you know, in bed to um, making sure that all devices are turned off if they're 16 between the ages of what I was. Well, actually, all, all kids now are, are addicted to electronics. So make sure that all the electronics are removed, you know, and Distance learning, of course, the challenges continue, but it just started way back in August. So it's um, the power of learning pods, so you find other parents, other children who are in the same grade, and you folks can actually create your own little support group. Yes, I mean, I understand that people are are doing that and, and are, I guess, modifying this whole homeschool concept where it's kind of like a co-op right Uh yes it definitely is a co-op and that way it's not just limited to um, your school it could be globally you know and i know a lot of states i I think i remember um, starting um, research in california where they did learning pods and then when i interviewed someone in ypo she said that's what i'm going to do but they were doing social distancing with three kindergartners who would come over social distance and actually having them physically in person which is awesome if you have little ones, right? And then teenagers, I mean, if they're already into the FaceTiming and doing things, you know, virtually. So if you had your friends who are not always in your class, you know, since now they're, when you're, I think right now, like Milani is just twice a week and it's according to last name. So if your friend is not, you know, in your group, you might not even see them. But if you schedule time outside of class, you know, you can have your own, your, your mini study group virtually. Yeah, so it's just a nice way to connect with a different maybe group of kids. Yes, definitely. Some of these tips, though, I would think are just kind of common sense, right? (laughs) Yes, that's what I was thinking. I was telling my friends, I mean, it's like focus on the right things or teaching your child the power of positive quitting. I mean, I started off with just distance learning, you know, make a schedule, put it on your fridge, uh, make sure that your kids really take the time to even stretch or do some kind of physical activity in between classes. But then it changed to, or incorporated, like change your child's bad mood, you know, by making them feel loved. I'm a strong, um, as a parent coach, you know, the five love languages and just dealing with the, the behavioral, you know, the attitudes. And then it started becoming more of just like you said, common sense tips, but sometimes it's hard to remain level-headed, you know, when you're about to lose it. 
and everything <laughs> goes out the window because you're so upset at you know, the present moment. Well, yeah, because parents are having to work remotely, and then they've got to supervise, you know, and be the teacher at home, you know, with multiple children online, and maybe you don't have the bandwidth <laughs> to support all this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I actually have to do the Google Meets. I mean, I have to go on to Google Classroom, and so I am tutoring virtually and logging on as them, and then we sometimes have Internet issues or the teacher didn't really um, attach a certain document or video, and I have one hour with them and then with technical issues, you know, already involved sometimes, right? Their Internet, something goes wrong with their Internet, or sometimes the teacher doesn't know how to log on. I had a student who couldn't log on for two days because their their new teacher didn't know how to um, have the students, you know, come into her his classroom, his virtual classroom. Yeah, everybody's at just varying levels when it comes to the technology, and depending whether yes. you have an iPhone or a tablet or a, a laptop or a desktop. Right, right. So depending on, and then if your battery dies and midway, they're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to switch onto my iPad. Hold on. And then <laughs> you just have to wait until they plug in their charger. And yeah, it's been a challenge, definitely. So is there anything uh, along the lines of just pandemic protocols, <laughs> you know, with little ones? Well, you know what it is? No matter what age, I think the pandemic protocol re is truly connecting with your child. I mean, we're so focused on the grade, the curriculum, logging on, making sure that your five-year-old is paying attention. But if the focus is just on academic achievement and checking off all the homework assignments, the child won't feel, you know, cared for, won't feel validated. I noticed that a lot of the, I've, I've also interviewed teenagers and adults who are in college and some of them, actually all of them say all they want is to be worthy right they want to feel worthy they want to be heard understood and not have so much pressure on academics i had a five-year-old say yeah i'm a little stressed i'm a little stressed and i said why because sometimes i get it wrong so my whole message is it's okay if you get it wrong and he looked at me and he said no i, I don't know i don't know about that mm -hmm. because you know the teacher will either right send some message where nope nope that's wrong that's wrong and if you're sensitive, right, yeah. then you feel that you failed. And I was distressed to read a story about how absenteeism is up in many of our schools. So the learning isn't happening. And I don't know if you've got tips for that. Well, you know what it is? I mean, I actually being next to a child who has to log on, and some of these kids are logging on and then playing video games. They're logging on and then taking a, an hour and a half shower. But knowing that if you were, I tell parents, if you were to take a tax class every single day virtually or something that you just cannot stand, you don't see value in it, but you keep having to do it, plus you get lectured, and then you have homework on top of it, you don't see any value in it. It's truly, I think, just giving kids just the understanding that, you know what, it's okay. It's truly okay, and then find out from them why they are not logging on or why they are missing assignments, but not letting them feel, like, guilty or that, you know what, you will fall behind from now on. You will never catch up because those messages will cause kids to not even sign on, you know, when they feel so um, behind. And that's my whole message is that we can educate them outside of the classroom, inside of our homes, and it doesn't have to be academically related. I was intrigued to see that the school board voted to offer free summer school. Many mm -hmm. of the private schools are offering also the classes to prep for the, the fall. If the kids have fallen behind, you want them to catch up. Yes, and I think that's what I was just telling my student today, a sixth grader who said, I failed it, I did the retake, but I'm gonna have to do another, they're letting me do another retake because most of the class failed it. And it was a vocabulary test based on a CNN news segment. And I said, that means a lot of kids have to retake it if she's letting you do a third retake. So I think that the teachers also are realizing that, yeah, the kids, you know, could use extra help. And if families can't afford summer school, which is pretty pricey, 
what better way than offering, you know, free summer school to have them catch up. If parents want to pick up your book, where can they find it? It's on um, Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble, Google Books. It's published by Balboa Press, so they actually have it available with Canada publishers. And But, but the easiest way, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and then, of course, Google Books. And there's all 100 parenting tips in the book as well as on my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel called Letting Go with Aloha. We have all 100 parenting tips recorded. Plus, I have interviews you know, with mental health specialists, with parents, grandparents. So it's kind of interesting to see how other parents have you know, their own tips or how they overcame these pandemic challenges. That was Karen Gibson, a tutor and a parent who has compiled tips for other families trying to juggle working remotely at home while their children are learning online. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. Special thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for today's field recordings. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the saffron finch. The saffron finch is a golden yellow songbird that can be commonly seen in small flocks on lawns and other grassy and shrubby areas on Hawaii Island and Oahu. Native to South America, they were introduced to Hawaii in the early 1960s, mainly because of their colorful plumage and their pleasant whistle-like songs. Both sexes are bright yellow, but males have a more orangey head and face, while juveniles are much lighter yellow. They mostly forage on the ground for seeds and insects, and are also happy to visit backyard bird feeders. These birds were introduced at a time when many of our native birds had disappeared from the lowlands due to mosquito-transmitted disease like avian malaria. If and when we ever succeed at landscape-scale control of these non-native mosquitoes, it's possible that many of our native birds, like the bright red apapane and the yellow amakihi, can recolonize our parks and backyards. It remains to be seen how they might interact with some of the newly established species like the saffron finch. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart, Biology Department at UH Hilo. Need a soothing, enlightening break? Manu Minute, Hawaii Public Radio's new feature on Hawaii Songbirds, is now a podcast. Listen to the sounds of island birds and learn about their environment and conservation. Subscribe to Manu Minute through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. close out this week's segments focusing on the Civil War with stories about three men whose tombstones are at the far diamond head corner of the Oahu Cemetery. Historian Nanette Napoleon came across a marker for a Hawaii son who died in the Caribbean. We also learn about a native Hawaiian soldier who fought in a special unit of colored troops. And we also hear about a Confederate soldier. Why don't we know more? But back to that Hawaii son who was not a soldier. Arthur Brown's name is on a marker in a new one plot, but he was laid to rest where he died halfway across the world in Bermuda. Here's Napoleon picking up the conversation. Let me first read the inscription here. It says, Arthur, eldest son of Thomas and Mary Ann Brown, died and was buried at Bermuda, August 31st, 1864, aged 27 years. 
So Arthur Brown was not born in the islands. His family came from England, immigrated to Hawaii, and the father started various businesses on Kauai and then in Honolulu and uh, became a very prominent businessman in the community. They had several siblings. Arthur was one of the sons. I think there were seven siblings altogether. And Arthur, at the age of 27, he always had an interest in sailing and he wanted to be something on a ship. He got that interest when he was sailing as a young boy from England to Hawaii. He would constantly ask the captain and the crew about this and that, what is this, what is that, how do you navigate? And he, he actually learned how to, a little bit of navigation. He was only like eight years old but he was really intensely uh, interested in that. So he came to Honolulu, came to Hawaii, yeah. and then ended up working as a blockade runner. What is a blockade runner? A blockade runner was would try to take goods that were coming from London primarily and other European countries because the South could no longer get goods it was hard to get goods now because a lot of the countries didn't want to support the North or South and things. There are a lot of political issues going on. So the South in particular, more than the North, had a hard time getting supplies. So they turned to Europe to bring in supplies. Now some of them were legally brought in, but a lot were illegally brought in because the North saw that the Southern ports were going to Europe for their goods. So they thought a good way to end the war was to cut off their supplies that would choke them. Instead of doing military battles and winning the war, they'd choke them off by their, their supplies, especially food supplies, and ammunition, and uniforms, and all the things they needed for the war. They were in need of, and so the North set up a whole bunch of ships that went all the way from Virginia, which is the starting point of the South, all the way down around Florida and into the Gulf. They set up these blockading ports. They sent blockading ships over there. And so they were trying to stop the South from bringing goods in. But there was a, a cadre of independent contractors that weren't officially in the Army or Navy of the North or the South. They contracted with people in the South to bring in goods for them. But in order to get to the South ports, there were, there were ships all over. They were hunting those blockade runners down and they would, they would destroy the boats and you know, arrest the guys. They could arrest them and go to prison they were captured. So Brown was, Arthur Brown was one of those blockade independent contractor. So he didn't die though in a skirmish or anything right. like that? Unfortunately, when he got there in 1864, it was at the height of a yellow fever epidemic in Bermuda and throughout the Caribbean, but mostly in Bermuda. So he gets there and I'm not sure if he knew before he got there that yellow fever was there or he got there and then found out, oh my God, it's here. Well, one way or another, he's there and he contracts uh, the disease, along with many, many others, uh, residents, and there was a, a large contingent of British soldiers there, the guarding forts there, because it was a British colony. So he, his body's still there somewhere in yeah, Bermuda. Yeah, so he dies. He's buried in a, a cemetery there. I have official records from Bermuda for that, and the date and the cemetery, but there's no marker for him there. So then the family is notified and then they can't find a marker, so they decide to put him in the family graveyard in Honolulu. We were intrigued to learn that one soldier buried at the Oahu Cemetery fought for the South. The numbers of Confederate Army soldiers here in Hawaii are small. This is a grave of Thomas K. Clark, who was born in 1839 and died in 1930. And his companion in death and buried here is his wife, Annie Clark, who was born in 1848 and died in 1904. And so what, why is he notable? Well, one, because he's the only Confederate Civil War veteran. So he fought for the Confederacy. Although there's very little documentation about his Civil War service, but I've been in contact with family members over the years, there's family members, and they showed me pictures of him and information that indicates that he fought for the Confederate Army. Do we know why, why that was? No, I don't. And, and you know, for Confederates, it's harder to trace their military life because all of the Southern military records were in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. And all the federal documents in the military were in Richmond. And when at the end of the war, General Ulysses S. Grant captured Richmond they burned the city to the ground practically. And a lot of, not all the Civil War records were burned in the fires, but a lot. 
And so as opposed to the North, they had better records. So it's always harder to trace the records for Confederates. But we have enough information. We know that he was in a, um, a naval regiment, but no official records to back that up. But that's in the family history, so they know that that's what they are telling me. And so this is a family plot. Yeah, it's a family plot. So do we know how he got here? So he comes out here um, because he heard that there was good opportunities for young men to go into shipping and business, so he came out to go into business. And he did. He went into the shipping business, and he became a very prominent uh, shipping businessman. And he married a Hawaiian woman. And so the Clarks that I know are um, from the Hawaiian Caucasian Clarks. Naomi Loach, she's a um, retired UH professor of Hawaiian language. So Thomas Clark, though, is our only Confederate soldier yeah. here. It turns out he was the last that died here. He was the last to die in 1930, the last of the Civil War veterans in Hawaii. And there is one Native Hawaiian soldier who fought for the North. An American flag and Hawaiian inscription marks the gravestone of J.R. Kealoha. We can see today a beautiful marker here, but this marker has not has only been here a few years. He died on March 5, 1877, but he never had a marker. So he laid without a marker here till just a few years ago when a group of the Civil War Roundtable group and myself and some others, we wanted to get him a marker because he deserved it. He fought in the Civil War but all these years he never had one. So we had a fundraising drive and we, we got a marker for him. And um, it says on the marker that he was a private in the 41st Infantry Regiment. U.S. Colored Troops, which we've talked about before, in the Civil War, died March 8, 1877. And it says in Hawaiian and English, a brave and honorable soldier. So the little we know about him is, is just primarily that he served in the U.S. Colored Troops, but we don't have anything beyond that, unfortunately. Couldn't find any official records, except for one card in the Hawaii State Library that lists him as, as being here and that he fought in the Civil War. So is the, he is the only Hawaiian that is buried in this particular cemetery, but there were other Hawaiians yeah. that fought in the war. Yes. There were other Hawaiians, and I have a whole list of them, and I'm, I'm writing about them in my book. And the most prominent one was Henry Ho'olulu Pittman. He was born and raised in Hilo. His mother was a high chiefess of Hilo, and she married an immigrant from Boston, Benjamin Pittman. And they had three children. Henry Ho'olulu Pittman was the middle child, and he fought in the American Civil War. And so he came from high Hawaiian lineage and fought in the war. And he died in the war. And so did the Hawaiians that fought in the war, did they fight on the side with the missionaries? They fought in the north just like the missionary sons. The presence of the missionaries were very strong here on all islands. And so they were familiar with New England. Hawaiian's allegiance went with more or less the missionaries' allegiance because they, they, that's what they knew most about America was the North through the missionaries. So that's one of the main reasons they, they went with the North. Yeah. And so as you've been doing your research for the book and you, you've been coming across other, other soldiers and their part, I mean, but we don't know where a lot of them are buried. I'm sure they're just buried yeah. all over yeah. The Hawaii. Yeah. Um, the biggest problem I have in, in researching Hawaiians who fought in the Civil War is the fact that so many of them, when they enlisted, they, the recruiters who were at the desk signing people in, when they, a, a foreigner of any kind, usually from Czechoslovakia or wherever, China, and there were people from China and, and, um, and other, from Guam who fought in the Civil War. They came with this strange name, non-English name, and they couldn't make heads or tails of it like Kealoha. So they would, they, they made up names. They were called uh, Namdegar, names of war. That makes it more of a challenge to figure out who's who. Because they were given names, and I have their names, but I don't know who they really were. I don't know their Hawaiian, and if I don't have their Hawaiian name, I can't figure out who they were. So, oh gosh, I guess if there's anybody out there listening and they know yeah. that their relatives took a part in the Civil War and are buried somewhere, they should reach out to Yes, you. yes, <laughs> Nanette Napoleon, I'm in the phone book or online. <laughs> gosh, so I guess that, that's the challenge, though, of trying to 
research the history because of the name changes, the Johnny on the spot. And so unless the family knows and can share that, then that's just something that's just buried in the tombs. There's a few I know, but most of the Hawaiians, I don't know who they are. But I, mean, I know they're Hawaiian because I have their military records through their fake names, okay? I, I look up their fake name, I find their military records and it. The standard forms start at the top, your name, place of birth, Sandwich Islands, color of hair, dark, color of eyes, dark, color of skin, this is very important, dark or mulatto, mixed blood. But then a lot of them ended up in the color. Yeah, and that's why they ended up in the color tooth, by virtue of their color, their skin color. So I know that even though I've seen a fake name, somebody that's listed as being born in Sandwich Islands, dark hair, dark eyes, dark complexion, that's a native Hawaiian, because there just simply wasn't black people in the Hawaiian Islands at that period, hardly. So yeah, just basically another part of uh, Hawaii history, and you hope to bring that together in your book. That's right, it's all coming together, and I'll, I'll name names and battles and um, everything about them that I've been able to research over the last 10 years I've been researching this subject. And the name of the book again? Hawaii Sons of the Civil War. And there you have it. We hope you've enjoyed taking time walking with us through the graveyard to learn about the Civil War stories tied to Hawaii. One other Confederate soldier we do know of was from a prominent family. Curtis Perry Ward was a staunch supporter of the South. Napoleon tells us that he and his wife, Victoria Robinson Ward, of the Ward estate here on Oahu, are buried at the Makiki Cemetery. There's also a marker at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific dedicated to those who served in the Civil War. And a half a dozen Native Hawaiians were said to have served aboard the Confederate ship, the Shenandoah. If you are interested in knowing more, a listener called in to share that there are additional resources to learn about the Pacific connection with Civil War stories. And we will share those on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we will hear more from Senator Kalani English about his struggles as a COVID long hauler and what lies ahead. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. And email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.